week and a half ago, I knew exactly what I was going to preach. Knew exactly the word I was going to use. I couldn't have been any more confident. A lot can happen in a week. God laid another message on my heart. I was telling Patty I was struggling. I was so sure I knew what God had wanted me to preach, but now God's wanting me to preach something else. But I was so sure what I was going to preach. And then I made, my, uh, uh, I made my mind up just to trust the Lord and go with what he was leading me in. And even this morning, uh, Megan, sweet sister, thank you. Uh, uh, I, I essentially asked her to put the scriptures up on, on the screen for me because I couldn't give her an outline. I couldn't even give her a uh, uh, PowerPoint. Essentially, I just gave her the whole word of God to put up on the computer screen based on how many mess, lesson, uh, word I gave her. Couldn't tell her, I, I don't know if I'm going to use them or not, but there they are. Um, but then with the, uh, the song service, and if you, if you have any doubt that what Caleb and these singers do is a ministry, uh, let, me, let, me, let me tell you. What they do is God-led and is a ministry. Uh, and in the, mess, in the lesson, in, excuse me, in the songs they sang this morning was a lesson and a message. At, um, man, it, you, you, you sang my message. So I can say with, with confidence, with no doubt, that what God has laid on my heart is what he wants to share with you today. It is a message of hope. And I am praying. I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer here in a moment. That the Lord will give me the words and the ability to effectively share with you what he has laid on my heart. Because like I told Brenda this morning, I'm ready to give the devil a black eye. I'm tired of his stealing. I'm tired of his killing. I'm tired of his destruction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord Jesus, I am just, I am just trusting in you this morning that you, the Lord, would just give, give me the word that we stand in need of. I pray, Father, Lord, that you would just take control of this service, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on us, Lord. This body, Lord, is yours, Lord. This, these words, Lord, are yours. This tongue, Lord, this mouth, Lord. I just ask, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, to share your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, Lord, that for the hearts that stand in need of hearing this, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would let this word, Lord, not just find a resting place on hearts, Lord, but let it change lives, Lord. Give me, Lord, the word, Lord, that you stand in, that we stand in need of, Father, Lord. I pray for the so many needs that we have here in this church, Lord. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. I am so thankful, Lord, for your blessing, Lord, this morning, Lord. Yes, Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
God truly has laid on my heart a message, Lord, of, of hope today. It is my hope to share with you some thoughts on amazing grace, enduring mercy, and God's everlasting sacrificial love. In other words, what I want to share with you this morning is the gospel. For in the gospel, we have hope. Now, if you've talked to enough people, and you've done the best you can to share the gospel with as many of them as possible, I am sure that you've heard just about every imaginable objection or excuse as to why they cannot accept God, why they don't believe in God. Frank Harbord wrote an article, and it was posted on ChristianBibleStudies.com. He listed his top ten objections to the gospel that he's, he's heard and he's had to try to overcome. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to go, this is not in any particular order. And uh, as much in the flesh, I want to tackle each one of these and, and tell you why, why they're wrong and, and, and really delve into these. The fact is, we've done that in part in, in our, our Bible studies and on Wednesday night in Sunday schools. We have addressed each one of these. But some of these objections, well, I think all of them come across as just excuses. The first is, and I'm sure everyone here has heard this at one point in time. All you, I don't want to hear about the church. I don't want to hear about you Christians. Because all you Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Hypocrite is a liar, a showman, an actor. Someone who is one thing but then pretends to something else. And let me tell you, there are hypocrites in the church. They most certainly are. They have been and they will always be hypocrites in the church. They are today. Hypocrites standing behind pulpits who profess one thing but possess something else. They're being guided by selfish ambition. And they're preaching the world instead of preaching the word. They are hypocrites. They are counterfeit Christians in the church. But thank you, Lord. Jesus told us to follow him, not man. They'll say, well, what about all the atrocities that Christianity is responsible for over the years? Now, I've heard this before. You don't hear it as much today anymore because, quite frankly, this generation can't even remember who the 16th president is, much less anything that's happened beyond that. But uh, I've heard it. What about the Crusades? That's pulling way back in history, all right? I heard that back when I was in college. Salem witch trials, the Inquisition, all these things. Man, they'll even try to blame the Holocaust if they can on Christianity. What about all the lives that have been ruined by hypocrites behind pulpits stealing people's money? Well, all that argument comes down to is the same thing. It's a hypocrite stealing folks' money. Leading folks astray. That's not the church. That's not God. That's hypocrisy. And there have always been atrocities. There have always been hypocrites. They'll say that all you Christians, 
Christianity, in fact, not just Christianity, but all religion, but especially Christianity, it's just a crutch. It's a crutch for the weak. For those who aren't strong enough to face the trials that life throws at them. Well, I could say a lot about this. But I'm going to tell you, as a man who struggles with this, it, is, it takes more strength for a man. Women too, I'm sure. It takes more strength for a man, especially this man, to admit he needs help. To admit that he can't do it on his own. Ask for help. And then accept it. Christians are not weak. We're strong because we're not depending upon our strength but his. All Christianity is narrow-minded. All you Christians say that Jesus is the only way. I didn't say it. Jesus did. He is either a liar or a lunatic or a Lord. He's one of those three and you must pick. But what about all these other religions? What about all these other faiths? Isn't just being a good person all that really matters? Now this is a really hard one to overcome nowadays because you have so-called Christian leaders, pretenders, so-called leaders of great large community of believers like the Pope who will come out and say just this very thing. All that matters is that you're good. Do the best you can. Well, that's not what the Word tells us. I'm here to tell you there ain't a single one of us good here this morning. What about about those, oh, Daniel, what about those who've never heard about Jesus? What about those? What about that... What that little boy out there in the desert somewhere? What about that little girl out in the dungeon somewhere? What about that family that's, that's uh, in some apartment somewhere in some slum? What about them? Never heard the name of Jesus. What about those? First off, we, to, to go to that excuse, it seems that God is not a compassionate God. But I'm here on the authority of God's word based on Romans chapter 2 and 2, specific, chapter 2 and 3, specifically chapter 2. That there is, if you have, if God knows that you have the heart that is seeking the light, he will send that light to you. He will send that truth to you. And there are examples in God's word of it. There was an Ethiopian one day, Ethiopian one day, he was just plodding along in the back of a chariot, seeking God. And God said, Philip, I know you're having a good time over here. I know the church is growing. I know, you, man, people are on fire here. But there's one man out in the desert out there, and he wants to know about me. Get up and go. And he went up and went. Cornelius, he is with his family, and he's praying. Cornelius is out there. He's a Gentile. Oh, he's an outsider. But he's got a heart. Lord, I want to know who you are. And God sent a vision to Peter and said, Peter, go to Cornelius. So if you say, what about those who have never heard about Jesus? I'm going to tell you, God take care of them. Don't you worry about them. God handle it. God has sent messengers like you and me to go talk to them. 
Well, they'll say, well, you're just using the word of God to combat all these uh, arguments, all these objections. You're right, I am. And then they'll say, well, all that word of God you got in your hand, it's full of errors. It's full of contradictions. No, ma'am. No, sir, there's no error. There is absolutely no error in this word. There is no theological contradiction in any of God's word right here, and I can tell you that. But what you might find are what uh, Frank Harvard calls difficulties. They might come across passages. You may come across passages that either because of lack of study, lack of understanding, or lack of the spirit, you might not completely understand. And it might seem at first glance that it's a contradiction. But through prayer, through study, you realize there is no error in the word of God. I grab a corn and I say that, that corn, you tell me that corn, and when you look at it, it has a head on it. And someone else says, no, 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 that corn has a tail on it. Well, guess what? You're looking at the same corn, just from different sides. That's what you see when folks want to claim there's errors in the Word of God. If God is so good, then why is there evil? Ooh, big subject. One answer. Free will free will, then why is there suffering, they'll say, because there's consequences to free will. Well, if there is a hell, there is a hell, but if there is a hell, why would a loving God send people there? I'm here to tell you God has never sent anyone to hell. If you go to hell this morning, it's because you choose to, because God has made a way out. Now, you, we've, I've dealt with these objections. I, I've, I've, we've talked about them. And it seems like every time you, if you're, deal, if you're in a conversation with somebody and they just keep popping off all these objections, all these excuses, it's one after another, after another, after another. They're not seeking truth. They're not seeking knowledge. All they're trying to do is build up a wall of excuses to help them justify their own unbelief. And you will not. Break that wall down. Because their heart is, is stone cold hard. Until God breaks that wall down. Until God breaks up that stony heart. Replaces that doubt with faith. All those excuses. It doesn't matter what your answers are to them. Nevertheless, we share the truth. But my heart is burdened today. I grieve. I grieve. Today about an objection of a different type. An objection not necessarily based on a lack of knowledge or doubt. Hear me out. But an objection based on guilt. See, there are those, and yes, even some believers, who have been bound in chains of guilt. So unable, so ashamed of what they've done or what they continue to do. Unable to forgive themselves. And as a result, they're unwilling, unwilling to seek the true forgiveness of God. I'm 
beyond God's forgiveness, they'll say. I've had someone, and this it's happened more than once, but I've had someone sit in front of me, look me in the eyes and tell me that they, they know who God is. They know who God is. They know that they've sinned. Look me in the eye and tell me when I die, I'm going to hell. And I deserve every bit of what I get. To hear someone that you've been praying for and pouring yourself into tell you that they, they knew they were going to hell. Imagine that for just a second. Just imagine that. Being so bluntly aware of your condition. Knowing that there was a, cur- a cure for your curse. Willing to accept the condemnation that awaits you. And denying the cross because you feel too dirty to get clean. And what this boils down to, I feel, and what I hope we, we clear up this morning, is a lack of understanding and a full grasp of just how amazing God's grace is. Just how wonderful and marvelous His love is. We sang about it this morning. Throughout these scriptures and throughout this message, and again, I'm not quite sure where we're going to go for. I've got scripture written down, and we're just going to let God fill in the the in-betweens. But I hope that in the process of this message, we not only talk about what grace is, but I want us to answer a big question. Is God's grace enough? Is it enough? In other words, is God's grace sufficient? Is God's grace sufficient to save me and keep me saved? Will the mercy that we preach about, the mercy that we hear and we sing about, will that mercy endure throughout all my ups and my downs? Will God's mercy endure when I'm on the mountaintop and when I'm down in the valley? Will God's mercy endure when I am struggling? And finally, and I hope we answer this question clearly. Is it possible to out-sin God's love? Can you out-sin God's love? Now, as believers, we hear these questions... And as we're sitting here and we're hearing these questions, the answers kind of pop in our head. Oh, of course not. Yeah, and we know, we know the answers to these questions. And for some of us, we say that, those answers so quickly as if we've never, ourselves have never actually struggled. Struggled with the application of those truths. Yeah, you know God forgives us. You know God's grace is great. You, we know that God's mercy endures forever. We know that God's love is everlasting. But I still struggle with that from time to time. And I'm a believer. 
But what about the unbeliever? The sheer weight and the magnitude of one's sinfulness along with that suffocating guilt can blind them to the only hope that can save them. So just for perspective, we're going to list a few verses here, starting with Psalm 6, to kind of give you an idea of what godly sorrow looks like. And I want to remind you that godly sorrow... It has an effect on a person. If you think you can have sin in your your life and in your your heart and go about your day-to-day life like it is nothing and it doesn't affect you, I'm here to tell you, based on the Word of God, that ain't true. Sin will weigh you down, and the guilt thereof will, will cause you so unimaginable burden. In the sixth Psalm, he says, Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Think about that for a second. Just to know that you've made the God, creator of the heaven and the universe, angry. Nor chasing me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are broken. Your sinfulness can make you feel sick. My soul also is greatly troubled, but on you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and in the grave who will give you thanks? I am weary in my groaning all night. I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. Just Crying out, tearful. Verse 7 says, My eyes are swollen, are full with grief. Psalm 32 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. I like to take verses when it says one thing, I look at it to help me understand it, I look at it in reverse. If the person who has Sin forgiven is joyful, is blessed. Guess what? The person who has not known the reality of forgiven sin, they're not joyful. They're not blessed. They're rather unhappy and sour. Verse 2. How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and has not, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept my silence, the psalmist says. When I kept my silence, my bones became brittle for my groaning all the day long. There was a while there when the psalmist knew he had sinned. God dealt heavy with him. He felt as if God's hand was pressing down on him. Yet he still didn't go to God with his his sin. And it had an effect on him. My bones became brittle and my groaning all day. For day and night my hand, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was drained. I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again now. Man, there's nothing worse to being around a Christian in a backsliding condition. Someone that knows better, should do better, but then continues out to sin and yet has still not confessed to sin. But I tell you, when you should be standing and man praising and thanking God for your day, man, they're just walking around. They're just sour. 
They ain't got no strength. They praise God like, thank you, Lord. Got no joy in their life. Psalm 38 says, Lord, do not punish me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my body, he says. There is no health in my bones. And why? According to verse 3, because of my sin. The sinner knows. You may be here today and you know why you're unhappy. You know why you feel so much shame in your life. You know that you're struggling. And yet, for some reason, you have yet to turn that over to God. My iniquities have flooded over my head, and they are a burden too heavy for me. You feel as if you're literally drowning. I like how the, the CSB says this. I'm, I'm curious how this is the New King James. What's it say? Says it. I like yes, yeah, the way I like it. Trans. I like this translation. My wounds. What wounds? The wounds that sin has left in your life are foul and festering. You've got gangrene because of your foolishness. What foolishness? The foolishness that you know you've got a disease. There's a cure for your curse, yet you still haven't come to Christ. Verse 6, I am bent over and brought very low, and all the day long I go around mourning. For my insides are full of a burning pain, and there is no soundness in my body. I am faint and severely crushed. I groan because of the turmoil, the sadness, the heartache, the pain of my heart. Verse 9, Lord, my every desire is in front of you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart races and my strength leaves me. And even the light of my eyes have faded. Imagine seeing that in front of you. And you're telling them, you ain't got to be that way. You ain't, you ain't got to be that way no more. The psalmist knew it ain't got to be that way no more because these psalms follow up with praise because he recognized he had received the forgiveness that he was longing for in these psalms. But imagine being in front of somebody, tell, hearing this and knowing this and them saying, there's still no hope for me. Dealing with this type of guilt on your own is impossible. Dealing with this type of guilt, that shame, without grace, is simply impossible. So what is grace? I like to, um, I break things down as simple as I can and I build them back up. Best way and the simplest way I can describe grace is when God gives you something good that you don't deserve. And mercy is when God doesn't give you something bad that you do deserve. Now, over the years, I've heard a lot of acronyms to try to help to understand what, what grace is. 
to help you try to remember. One of them that, that kind of stands out, I remember this one from Vacation Bible School. Some of y'all probably hear, heard it before. But it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Have y'all, anybody else ever heard that before? Grace. What's grace? Well, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, we want to delve into that a little bit. God's grace is, in fact, a free gift. It's often desi- uh, described as being undeserved or unmerited favor. In Christian terms, grace can be defined as God's favor toward the unworthy. It is His grace. God is willing to forgive us and bless us, even though we fall short, so short of living righteously. John Piper wrote, On the one hand, grace is called, and I think this is an absolutely wonderful phrase, undeserved favor. And it is undeserved. It is a gift. Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified freely. You cannot earn it. This means that there's something about grace, there's something about the nature of God that makes him want to give you Something good. He wants to justify you even though you don't deserve it. Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more is the grace of God and the gift by the grace of of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So if you had any doubt about what that free gift is, he tells you. It's a gift of life. Romans 11, 11, chapter chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, the work is no longer work. In other words, if grace isn't something you can earn or work for, if grace was that, if salvation was that, guess what? If forgiveness was that, it would not be a free gift. If it was work that earned it, then it would be a reward or a wage. But it's a free gift. And here's the wonderful thing. Now, most of us have that idea of grace in our minds when we say that God's grace is amazing. And it is truly amazing. Man, our eternal lives depend on it. None of us, none of us would be saved today if it wasn't a free gift. There ain't a one of us here that's good enough to earn it. Not a single one of us here. Yet today I am looking out at a room full of folks who have accepted that free gift. And why? Because it is the very nature of God, a desire that no man should perish. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. But grace is this and so much more when we consider that the very air you breathe this morning is a gift from God. 
Consider this also when we think about the amazing grace. When we consider that grace is, is truly just a gift. And all the things when you start to consider what God has given you this morning. God's grace not only gives you life. And from perspective of a Christian, a new life as a new creature. God's grace not only gives you life. He gives you the ability to live. Let me say that again. God's grace gives you life and the ability to live. Not as the world lives, but to live as a new creature in Christ. It's grace that allows you to do that. So if you're thinking, well, I just can't keep it up. I can't live that way. No, you can't. That's when grace steps in, my friend. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 9 says, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But do you think you've done some bad things? Paul, when he was Saul, tortured and murdered Christians because they were Christians. But the grace of God. I was an adulterer. But the grace of God. I was a murderer. But the grace of God. But the grace of God. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It is grace that gives you the ability to live a life as a Christian. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, And God is able to make every grace overflow in you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Your good works you do is by grace. But I'm, I can't do all those things. I'm too weak to do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. Well, guess what? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God would like nothing better to take you as, 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 as lowest of the low and do some of the greatest things there is, not for your glory, but for His. And although I've used this verse a lot of times, go ahead and throw it up there. Romans 3.23. I've used this verse a lot to help someone understand that they are a sinner. You know the old phrase, you've got to get someone lost before you can get them found? Well, it really is kind of true. You have to, get some, you have to help somebody understand their need. I mean, it's not like hunger. You know when you're hungry, right? Uh, you know when you're hungry. Uh, but for the lost person, they're blissful in their sin sometimes. God, the, God is the last thing on their mind. They're just living it up thinking that, hey, man, devil has them so blinded. Everything is going smooth because they're swimming downstream along with the flow. So I've used this first to let them know that, no, you're not good enough. You're a sinner. But I'm here today to share this because I believe somebody 
Somebody besides me needs to hear this. You're not the only one that's sinned. You're not the only one that's struggled. You're not the only one that's still struggling. For all have sinned. You look at the church and you think we're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm going to tell you what. You look at a true church, you know what it's filled of? It's filled with a bunch of sinners. And hopefully a bunch of sinners that are saved by, by grace. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There ain't a single one of us here that is good enough. You're not alone, brother. You're not alone, sister. Romans 6.23 says, Because you might argue, well, my sin is... It just ain't right. I've done some things wrong and someone's got to pay for this. There's, There's a price to pay for all this evil. You're right, there is a price to pay. In fact, the wages of sin is death. And you know, we preach that a lot. We preach this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But God forbid if I stop right there without sharing you the fact that the gift of God is eternal life. And that is what I want to remind you of this morning. You see, it's that second part that burdens me. It aches in my heart this morning. I want you to know. God needs you to know. Because he is a just God. And his justice requires judgment for our sinfulness. And that judgment for your sin is death. It's a death sentence. But my friends, where the law requires death, Christ gives life. Grace gives life. And because of that, we as believers have been justified. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there is still time. You can still be justified, you can still be saved. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, oh, there it is. Thank you. I told you I threw a lot of scriptures at her. Therefore, having been justified by faith. You're justified by faith. It's faith. Not your works, not your deeds, not your clean living, not this I'll clean myself up and when I get clean I'll come to God stuff. No. Don't go be cleaning the outside of the plate and sit in the dirty dish in front of me. Clean the inside and the out. And the only one to clean that inside is God, and that can only happen through faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Let me tell you, it is a horrible, miserable, frightening thing to have God against you. To know that God is your enemy. If you're walking around and you feel like the psalmist, that God has got his hand pressed down on you, weighing you down, burning you down, your bones are broken and crushed because of the sin in your life. Let me tell you, there's no peace between you and God. But you know what? Because of faith, 
You can have that justification. You can have that peace. Though he, through he, we also have obtained access by faith into grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope and glory in God. And whether you are hearing this here or online for the first time or the hundredth, If you haven't made peace with God, please, please, please know that you too can be justified by faith in Jesus. And yes, all of your sins. Yes, even that one that just popped in your head. Even that one you think, no, God ain't going to forgive this. Guess what? God can forgive that one too. Guess what? He died for that one, too. And that one you just thought about, guess what? He died for that one, too. And that one that's causing you all that shame, all that guilt, that one that's got you chained and bound, guess what? Jesus died for that one, too. All those sins and all those worst deeds, all those things that make you feel you're too dirty to get clean, All those things that you feel are unforgivable. Guess what? All that guilt can be washed away. And you too can be forgiven. Psalm 103. Ooh, this is a good psalm. This is a glimpse of what it could be like for you. You're sitting there today or you're at home watching this today and you think, man, this is miserable. Brother Dan, you're right. This is pretty bad. Let me tell you, I'm going to show you the other side of what you could be experiencing this morning if you just surrender to him. If you would just accept his forgiveness, let his grace be poured out to you. Look at what he says he could give you. He says, bless the soul. My soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord. And do not forget all his benefits. And why? Verse 3. Because he forgives all your iniquities. Not some. He forgives all of your iniquities. And he heals all of your disease. That foul, festering wound you've got. Guess what? Christ is the cure for that. Verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with, uh, with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your root youth is renewed like an eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He reveals his ways to Moses. His deeds to the people of Israel. Verse 8, remember I said it's part of his nature. Verse 8, what's it say? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is, and he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. Whoop, whoop, that sounds like mercy. 
He has not dealt with us. He has not given you what you deserve. Or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east, I don't know which way is east. As far as the east is from the west, somewhere it's out there. All the way. All right. So far as to remove your transgressions from us. You know what? I don't know which way is east or west. I don't know either. But you know what? Cast and Crowns had a wonderful song decades ago. That makes me feel old. But decades ago, they had a song, and they asked the question, How far is the east is from the west? From one scarred hand to the other. Micah, chapter 7. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what God's grace does. I'm going to show you a little bit more about what, what God is like. Because you want to know what God is like? Who is God like? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Next verse. He does not retain his anger forever. Thank you, God, for not holding on to that anger. Because he delights, he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and and will subdue our iniquities and will cast our sins, our sins, into the depths of the sea. It is gone. Thank you, Jesus. And I don't know how many more ways I could say it. And you're probably thinking right about now, oh, we should hurry up and finish saying it. I know you feel unforgivable. I know you feel like you've sinned too much. And my friends, that's the point. You are unforgivable. But Jesus loves you so much he forgave you anyway. And I know, I know, I know, I know the thought that went through your mind. I know that thought. I know what the devil's accusation is right now. He's hurling. You're thinking it right now. I know somebody's thinking it right now. You're thinking, Brother Dan, I can't keep it up. I can't keep from sinning. I can't break these habits I've been struggling with. I can't do it. You want to. I know you want to. And you've tried and you failed and you failed and you tried again and you failed and you tried again. And you feel right now, you feel, you are convinced that God's great isn't enough. Even though I have told you over and over again this morning, it is sufficient. Listen, please listen to this. God's grace is sufficient for all your needs, including forgiveness. And yes, freedom, true freedom from that sin that has you chained. We sinned yesterday. Guess what? God's grace was sufficient. We sinned today. You know what? God's grace is sufficient. When we sin and we will tomorrow and the next and the next, God's grace will still be sufficient. Jesus gives us a picture of an example to follow when it comes to forgiving those repetitive sins. In Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22, Peter goes to him and he says, 
Lord, I'm giving him a little southern twang. Lord, how often should I, I forgive my, my brother that sins against me? And, and how, 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 how many times do I need to forgive him? Uh, up to seven times? Is seven times enough for me to forgive him? And Jesus says, no. I do not say to you up to seven times. Seven times, no. What I say to you, and here's what gets me. When you look at the context, this is not lifetime. This is how many times he sinned against you that day for that sin. He says, I want you to forgive them 70 times. Seven. Now, if he is expecting you to do that, how much more will he forgive? All right? God's grace truly is amazing, isn't it? The old hymn says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that extends, exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was, was split, split. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that were pardoned and cleansed within. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all of our sins. In Exodus 34, God assures us of this. It says, the Lord came down in a cloud. And the Lord stood with him, him who stood with Moses. The psalmist talked about this a minute ago. And proclaimed his name. I am the Lord. In case there's any doubt, this is coming from the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, me, is a compassionate, Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness of truth. God says of himself, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am loving, forgiving iniquity, maintaining faithful love to the thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You know what? Jonah knew this too. Jonas tells us over in chapter 4 of his, of, of his, uh, of his book, and he was angry with this fact, which means, you know, he had some problems too. But uh, Jonas says in chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah knew it. I pray you do too. The psalmist fills his praise and his worship with this fact over and over again. He says on Psalm 118, you, you could have 118. When, you heard, when I heard you say Psalm 118, I'm like, ooh. Uh, he about to, he's about to step all over my message. <laughs> He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures 
Forever. Yeah, even when those bad days happen. Even when you give in to that temptation. Even when you're struggling. Even when you are accused by the devil telling you there is no hope for you. Guess what? There's still hope because his mercy endures forever. Verse 2. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Verse 3. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endures forever. Verse 4. Let those who fear the Lord now say, let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. So why are you here this morning? Why are you listening to this this morning and still fighting against that call? Why do you continue to argue and throw up excuses? Denying the free gift of a new life and forgiveness. Brother Dan, you say nothing's free. And you're right. Nothing's free. Your freedom cost a dear price, a price paid with blood. In fact, God's Word tells us this. As I told you, I could have just used the entire Word of God. I'm throwing Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed unto us the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. You're right. There is a cost, a price to be paid for your sin. And Christ paid it for you. Preacher, you may argue. If you're still arguing. No one could love me that much. Romans 5, 8 says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while, while you are still a sinner, you haven't cleaned up yet. Guess what? God still loves you. And he not only loves you, he died for you. Yeah. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loves us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin... Made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. All the love of God is greater far than tongue and pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song. Could we, could we, with ink, the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk... Every twig on earth, a quill, and every man, a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above, it would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though it was stretched from sky to sky. Brother Dan, does God really love me that much? 
Does God really love you that much? Let me tell you how much he loves you. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That if you would believe on him this morning, you don't have to, have, you don't have to perish. But you too can be justified, saved by grace, and have eternal life. My burden is shared. Caleb. We're going to do a, uh, an invitation. I don't, you don't preach a message like, not, like that and not assume that somebody needs to hear it. I'm not, going to pre- I'm not going to plead with you anymore. I've pleaded with you this entire service. I have pleaded with you online. And if you're online and you're watching this, I'm going to tell you, right now, give it over to God. His love, his grace is sufficient to forgive you of all your sins.